If you take your Bibles, please, and join me as we continue in a series on David, I would invite you to go to 2 Samuel chapter 5. 2 Samuel chapter 5. We mentioned last week when we were winding down that the New Testament says that these things written in the Old Testament, the stories, the accounts, are written for us as an example, as an encouragement. Now, where I want to be today is I'm going to ask this question. How should we live to attract the blessings of God? The reason I say that is because the way this passage is unfolding. If you remember where we were last week, the book of 1 Samuel ends on a real downturn. Saul, the king of Israel, is dead. The the Philistines are invading the land. The Jewish army is scattered. The peoples in the cities are all of a sudden being pushed out, and the invaders, the Philistines, are taking over. It is some of the darkest days since all the way back to the book of Judges, and it's a horrible time. After Saul's rule of 40 years, it looks like everything is absolutely done, defeated, discouraged. The people have no hope. Who's going to lead? The, the, the government, the, their Washington, D.C., seems like they have no answers. Does it sound like today? Does it sound like we face those times? And then we come to Second Samuel. In Second Samuel, I want you to just jump to a part in Second Samuel chapter 5 where all of a sudden things seem to turn around. And they turn around because as First Samuel ended, Second Samuel starts with David. God is going to be working in David. And in the first four chapters, God works in such a way until we get to chapter 5, verse 1. Then came all the tribes of Israel to David unto Hebron and spake, saying, Behold, we are your bone, your flesh. Also in time past, when Saul was king over us, you were, uh, thou wast he that led, that led out and brought, brought in Israel. And the Lord said to thee, Thou shalt feed my people Israel, and thou shalt be a captain over Israel. So all the elders of Israel came to the king to Hebron, and the king David made a league with them in Hebron before the Lord, and they anointed David king over, you may want to put in here, all Israel. All Israel. Why I say that? David was 30 years old when he began to reign, and he reigned 40 years. In Hebron, he reigned over Judah seven years and six months, and in Jerusalem, he reigned 30 and three years over all of Israel and Judah. And if you jump down to verse 10, God's comment is this, and David went on and grew great, and the Lord God of hosts was with him. Interesting how all this unfolds and how David all of a sudden becomes this man of God where all of a sudden the Lord is blessing the nation and David becomes a fabulous king. The nation Israel is wonderfully blessed. As you look at David's life and go through the rest of this section of scripture, you find out that all of a sudden for the first time all 12 tribes are going to be formed into a very strong empire is a better word. The capital of Jerusalem is going to be taken from the Jebusites and they're going to move in and make it the Israeli capital. It's going to become the holy city of God. When you look at Israel, when David first comes to the throne, they're about 6,000 square miles. By the time he is done, they are well over that, 10 times in the space. When you look at what happened to them during David's rule, when David starts, the Philistines are invading the cities. When he is done or during his lifetime, none of the enemies dare stands against him or Israel at that moment. In fact, they become so powerful, nobody threatens their borders for the next 80 years. 
It's only after Solomon does somebody else try to invade them. Why? Because David has made such an impact. When we think about David and what he does with Israel during 2 Samuel, they open up trade routes through the entire world. Israel all of a sudden experiences prosperity that they've never had before. It's their golden age. As you continue through, you have this idea where David is going to lead the people, guide the people into making Jehovah worship really solid in fact, he's going to bring the Ark of the Covenant to Jerusalem. We'll talk about that next week. It talks in scriptures about how David will order the priesthood, get them so organized that they go on rotating shifts. They've never did that in the past. But now they're going to be more organized than ever before. And David lays the groundwork for the temple of God, which is going to become the centerpiece of Israel for many years. David doesn't build it, you know, because David shed blood. His hands are bloody from all the battles. But he will collect all the items that when his son comes to the throne, everything <clears throat> excuse me, everything is ready for them to build the, the temple. David is such an important character and has such a good influence and is so blessed by God, he becomes the standard for all the kings after that. Watch this. Watch how many times that the kings later on are compared to walking in the way of David, having a heart like David had a heart, following the Lord the way David followed the Lord. He's the human standard for all the different kings. And when they talk about kings doing right, they talk about like David did. Or if they talk about kings not doing right, not like David did. And so David is the standard all the way through that portion of scripture. Now why is it God blessed David's rule? Why is it that David Though he was flesh like we are, he stumbled, he fell, he had difficult moments. Why is it God says he's a man after God's own heart? Even in the New Testament, that's what they know him as. What did he do? How did he live to all of a sudden become so blessed of God in his influence, in his impact, in his ministry, and what he was doing? How is it that God so blessed him that he was able to lead Israel out of these dark days? As we go through the first four chapters of the first of second Samuel which covers a period of about 7 years in those chapters we're going to see David and what he did as God was preparing him to take the throne over all of Israel and what David acted like how he lived in other words what lifestyle do we need to live to attract God's blessing upon our hearts our lives our homes our neighborhood watch this from the life of David number 1 his worship of God you see his worship of God. Now, if you want to see his worship of God really portrayed, you have to go to the Psalms. There are several Psalms that are written at this time. I'm going to invite you to join me in Psalm 95. I'm going to read several verses from that and the success of Psalms. We know from history that David wrote, during the seven years period, several of these Psalms. Watch his heart, just to get a feel of what David was like. I'm starting in Psalm 95, starting with verse 1. Oh, come, let us sing unto the Lord. Let us make a joyful noise to the rock of our salvation. Let us come before his presence with thanksgiving. Make a joyful noise unto him with psalms. For the Lord is a great God. He is a great king above all gods. In his hands are the deep places of the earth. The strength of the hills is his also. The sea is his. He made it. His hands form the dry land. O come, let us worship, he says, then bow down, let us kneel before the Lord our maker, for he is our God. We are the people of his pasture and the sheep of his hand. Today if you will hear his voice, harden not your heart as in the day of provocation and as in the day of temptation in the wilderness. Jump down to chapter 
or Psalm 96. He says this, Oh, sing to the Lord a new song. Sing unto the Lord all the earth. Sing unto, unto the Lord. Bless his name. Show forth his salvation from day to day. Declare his glory among the heathen, his wonders among all people. For the Lord is great and greatly to be praised. He is to be feared above all gods, for all the gods of the nations are idols. But the Lord made the heavens. Honor and, and majesty are before him. Strength and beauty are in his sanctuary. Give unto the Lord, O ye kindreds of the people. Give unto the Lord glory and strength. Give unto the Lord the glory due unto his name. Bring an offering. Come into his courts. Worship the Lord in the beauty of holiness. Fear before him all the earth. Say among the heathen that the Lord reigns. The world also shall be established that shall establish that it shall not be moved. He shall judge the people righteously. Let the heavens rejoice. Let the earth be glad. Let the sea roar and the fullness thereof. Let let the field be joyful, all that is therein. Then shall all the trees of the wood rejoice before the Lord, for he comes. For he comes to judge the earth. He shall judge the world with righteousness and the people with his truth. 97. The Lord reigns. Let the earth rejoice. Let the multitude of the islands be glad thereof. Clouds and darkness are round about him. Righteousness and judgment are the, are the habitation of his throne. A fire goes before him and burns up, he says, his enemies round about. His lightning enlightened the world. The earth saw and trembled. The hills melted like wax at the presence of the Lord. At the presence of the Lord of the whole earth, the heavens declare his righteousness and all the people see his glory. Go to chapter Psalm 98. Oh, sing unto the Lord. He says, a new song. He has done marvelous things. His right hand, he says, and his holy arm hath gotten him the victory. The Lord hath made known his salvation. His righteousness hath he openly showed in the sight of the heathen. He has remembered his mercy, his truth toward the house of Israel. All the ends of the earth have seen the salvation of our God. Make a joyful noise unto the Lord all the earth. Make a loud noise and rejoice and sing praise. Sing unto the Lord with a harp. With a harp and with the voice of a psalm. With trumpets and the sound of the cornet. Make a joyful noise before the Lord the King. Let the sea roar, the fullness thereof, the world and they that dwell therein. Let the floods clap their hands. Let the hills be joyful together before the Lord, for he comes to judge the earth. With righteousness shall he judge the world and the people with equity. We read in the next one, the Lord reigns, let the people tremble. He sits between the cherubim, let the earth be moved. The Lord is great in Zion, and he is high above all the people. Let them praise thy great and terrible name, or excellent name, for it is holy. Go to Psalm 101. Watch the next few verses at the beginning. I will sing of the mercy and judgment unto thee, O Lord, will I sing. I will behave myself wisely in a perfect way. O when wilt thou come unto me? I will walk within my house with a perfect heart. I will set no wicked thing before mine eyes. I hate the work of them that turn aside. It shall not cleave to me. A froward heart shall depart from me. I will not know a wicked person. Whoso privately slanders his neighbor, him will I cut off. Him that has a high look, a proud look, proud heart, will not I suffer. Let's go back to Second Samuel. But keep in mind what we've just read at length. We've just read about a man who takes time to write about the greatness of God, to look around about him and to write songs, to write poetry about how great God is, how wonderful he is, to look at God's handiwork and see God in it. 
you know, we think, we complain. We talk about things that bother us like a beehive in our parking lot. This we got out yesterday. It's huge. We got it out in one piece. And it came out and I was amazed. Not that the bees came after me, but I was amazed that Jack was able to boldly cut that thing out and get it out of there. But as we looked at the beehive, and if you really want to see it, it's in my office. Okay, You can go to my office afterwards. Jack has it there for display. It's wonderful. It's amazing when you pull it open a little bit. How those bees are so creative. How they do with it. They make this hive with so many colors. It's amazing that those bugs can do that. Why do we get amazed? Why do we get amazed when I pull off some wood off of my shed and I snap it in half because the carpenter bees have made it so weak and I look at the drilling of the carpenter bees? It is better than a drill bit. It is amazing. Now, friend, we often complain about the weather. We complain about the bees. We complain about things. But we're supposed to stop and recognize that nature declares the handiwork of God. To think about how amazing God is. David does it. David takes time to say, God, you have kept me. God, you have helped me. And he has the wisdom, the the fortitude to say, I'm going to take time out of my day to worship God. I'm going to take time to praise him and not just petition him. I'm going to take time to talk about, Lord, I need you. Help me. Help me not to put something in, in, in before my face that is bad. And David sits down, takes the time, because he really believes in worship. He really believes it's important to just focus on God. Do you worship that way? Seriously, do you wor- did you worship that way this week? Did you take time this week to just sit and think about the greatness of God? Did you take time this week to look at the bugs, the insects, the birds, and ponder on the greatness of our God. How God takes care of them, he says he would take care of us. I mean, seriously, when it comes to worship, do you worship the way David did? In a way that would draw God's approval. I mean, just just taking time to focus on the Lord. Do you worship in such a way when you gather here and we worship and we sing about God? Do you focus on the worship? Do you even sing with understanding? Or is your mind just kind of blanked? When it comes to to sitting and talking with somebody, you would be offended. If all of a sudden somebody treated you this way, all of a sudden they're just preoccupied. They don't want to, you're talking, you're doing something, and they're not listening to you. They're just not paying attention. You know, when God says you gather... I'm listening. Where two or three are gathered, I'm in the midst. Do you pay attention to God? Do you think about God? When you get alone to talk to him, how is it when you all of a sudden go through the life? You go through the games that you played this week. You go through the trials. Do you pause afterwards and worship? Do you give praise? When you're here, do you encourage worship or do you distract others from the worship? You know what? I was thinking about this. To enhance my own worship, maybe I need to do what David did. Maybe it would be a good thought for me, maybe for you, to on a weekly basis write God a poem. Mine would be horrible. They, they would be really bad poems. 
But the thought is to write a love note, a praise note to God. And next week when I come to worship, to, in my pew, read that to God. Pray that to God. My own personal worship as part of the public worship while, while we sing, while we do other things. To just stop and to think. David really worshiped. David really got into it. And if somebody wrote your story like they're writing David's story, that's, that's what Second Samuel is all about. It's writing the story of David so the people understand he's the one. He's one we can follow. We have confidence in him. And they talk about his worship, as we'll see in a moment. They talk about his praying. They, if, if somebody wrote your biography from this past week, would there be a paragraph about your praise, your worship, that it was impacting? Not only is David focused on worshiping of God, that stands out, that brings God's, God's blessings, but there's his waiting on God. And, and I'm going to develop this and bring the two together. David's patience and David's praying go together to display how he waited upon God. We're going back to the beginning of the book. We're going back to where all of a sudden David, as you recall, has been anointed king when he was around 16 years old. So we're talking about 14, 15 years earlier than what we read in this section. David, for all these years, has been patient. He knows he's going to become king. And in 2 Samuel, we read that at the end of 1 Samuel that Saul is dead. The throne is vacant. The throne that David was supposed to take over, and everybody knew it. Everybody talked about how they knew David would be the next king. Jonathan, Saul's own son, the heir to the throne, he said, David, you'll be the next king. We read about Abigail here three weeks ago. She said, you're going to be the next king. We saw, even when he was repenting of chasing, he said, you will be the next king. And then we read in this section of, of the story, we read about Saul's general, Saul's chief of staff who takes over when Saul is dead. And later on, he will make this comment that we read in chapter 3, his words about David, and he says this, So God do to Abner, and more also except, as the Lord has sworn to David, even so I do to him, to translate the kingdom from the house of Saul to set up the throne of David over Israel. This is the man who is going to be leading the top ten, the, the other tribes, and helping to put one of Saul's sons on the throne for a seven-year period. But he knows David's supposed to be the king. He knows it. He admits it. Everybody knows that David is supposed to be the king. But what happens? David, knowing that he's going to be the king, he waits on God. What happens is he didn't kill Saul, even though, even though he knew he was going to be Saul's successor, he didn't kill him. But when Saul is dead, we read what David does. Chapter 2. After he has the burial for Saul that we'll come back to in chapter 1, David now is saying, what do I do? Where do I go? Am I, I'm supposed to be the king. Everybody knows it. We read chapter 2, verse 1. It came to pass after this that David inquired of the Lord, saying, shall I go up unto any of the cities of Judah? And the Lord says, go up. And David said, where should I go? Go unto Hebron. So David went up with his two wives 
and mentions them. His men that were with him did David bring up, every man with his household. They dwelt in the cities of Hebron. When it talks about going up, they're leaving Ziklag and they're going to Hebron. They're leaving, leaving the fortress where he's been now for the last 16 months. And he goes up to Hebron and the men of Judah came and there they anointed David king over the house of Judah. And they told David saying that the men of... We'll stop there. David inquires of the Lord. He knows it's God's will for him to be the king, but he doesn't know the timing. And so he says, God, I'm going to be patient. When do you want me to claim the throne? And so in his patience, David goes up and he gets direction. Now, David's inquiring of the Lord is very, very typical of David. All these different references, how David inquired of the Lord. David, may I ask the question once again? If somebody wrote your story, your biography, would they have this listed? Would there be you inquired of the Lord time and time and time and time and time again? Would your prayer life be recorded in your biography? To attract God's blessings, there needs to be this worship of the Lord, this waiting upon the Lord, where somebody is very involved in praying and waiting on God to lead. So David, as we've already said, he goes, he is anointed over Judah, but not the rest of the tribes. Okay, my question that, that you who are sitting there, who have followed the story really carefully, you got to wonder, what, why didn't the other 12, 11 tribes anoint him? Why is it that they hesitate? David never went up. He never publishes and says, I'm here. God had to tell him, you go up to Hebron, they'll come to you. But only one tribe comes. Why didn't the other 11? Why do you think the others were hesitant to make David king? Any ideas? It was common knowledge he's going to be the king. We've already proven that. Why didn't the others? Why didn't Abner, the general, we've already quoted him. He knows David's the appointed king, but he doesn't bring the other tribes to David. Why not? What? Go ahead. Yeah. Think of the context. Where has David been of late? I already said it about two minutes ago. He's spent the last 16 months living with who? The Philistines. He's been living with the Philistines. Okay, so for the last 13 plus years, how has everyone viewed David? Saul has made David to be in all the press, in all the clippings, in all the emails going out, in all the texts. David has, all, has been the one who's um, been on the flight. He's been a criminal. He's been an enemy. He's been presented that way. By the way, if you tell people something long enough, does it become... Accepted, acceptable. And so David, for the last 13 years, all they've heard about him is criminal, criminal, criminal. They know this, that for the last 16 months, he's been living with the enemies. They know this, that when the Philistines came to invade just days ago, when their army came in and they fought against Saul, David had initially marched with the Philistines. Remember that? No, yes. The Philistines, the other leaders next to Achish said, he doesn't go into battle with us, send him home. But he was there in their camp. So the last they knew about David, he had joined the Philistines right before the battle. And so they have this concern. And so David, 
when he went back home, he doesn't come to the Israelites' help. Now, if you're Abner, if you're one of the army men, you fought against the Philistines and you got whooped. You got beat badly. Wouldn't you in the back of your mind say, David, why didn't you come and help us? If you're supposed to have been the future king, where were you when we were fighting the Philistines? Well, we know where David was. He had gone back to Ziklag and had to deal with getting his family back. But they don't like this idea that David's been with somebody else. Can you blame them? Okay, so here it is. David isn't being anointed king. But what happens is he gets anointed. We read in the passage, he becomes king over Judah. He will rule over Judah for all 40 years. But he doesn't become king over the rest of the tribes for another seven years. But he never forces himself on them. He never goes over and defeats their armies. He just waits on the Lord. Now, there is warfare taking place. You go to chapter 3. You look at, look, look at the text. It talks about how there is conflicts between David's men and there is conflicts between those who are still following Saul's house. And there's battles that are taking place. Now, the one who is in charge of Saul's house, his name is Ishbosheth. Okay? His original name was Esh Baal. Baal sounds bad, so they changed his name to Ishbosheth. And Ishbosheth was a young man, only around 40, when all the other sons were killed in battle. He survived, whether he, apparently he wasn't at the battlefield. And so he's proclaimed king. Abner, the chief of staff, the one who's in charge of all Saul's army, he goes back to their capital and he proclaims Ishbosheth to be the new king, even though he knows David's supposed to be. But he doesn't trust David. And so Ishbosheth rules. The problem we have in the text is this. It says he only rules for two years. What about the other five years? They're without a leader? When were those other five years? Right after Saul was killed? Was there a year or two before Ishbosheth was king? Or is Ishbosheth become king right away and then there's five years of vacancy? We don't know. But we know that David is down in Judah and there's border friction between Judah and the other 11 tribes. Ishbosheth is ruling and Ishbosheth, he's a bad ruler. He's, he's, just, he's not real good. He, he's one that people would look and say, you can't hold a good press conference. Okay? He's, he's not real sharp. And so what happens here, David is while, he's, while this time is going by, David waits. He's supposed to be king, but he waits for the tribes to come to him. He is waiting on the Lord. He is waiting on the Lord. Think it through. He knew he'd be king. He waits on God's timing. He's praying about it over and over, but he never forces the issue. He waits on God to prepare the hearts. And then all of a sudden, what happens? When they come to him, he accepts the throne. And they'll come to him in chapter 5. And so even though the people are getting fed up, with Ishbosheth because he's like his dad. He's oppressing the people. David never runs in, never takes over. His praying helps him to be patient. So again, we say, okay, what about you? What about you and me? If they were to write our story, would it say we're patient? We're waiting on God. We're exercising a prayer time. Even when it looks like, hey, hey, the throne is empty for five of the seven years and I'm supposed to be the king. 
Wait on the timing of the Lord. Is that your characteristic? Patience. If somebody writes my story, if my wife wrote my story, that would not be the description for me. It is something I must work on. To attract the blessings of God, we need to be an individual who worships. We need to, like David, wait on the Lord. We need to, number three, walk the right way before other people. Walk right before other people. There are surveys like this one that was done here just a couple, few years ago. What would Americans do for money? And in this survey, they said, what would you do for $10,000? What would you do for $100,000? What would you do for a million dollars? What would you do for a billion dollars? And people will give up their ethics for money very quickly. Very quickly. There are certain things that they would say people would murder for money. People would, you know, pretend that this marriage is real. People would have sex with somebody they'd never met. Some people would fake their own death. Some people would become a porn star in a video for money. Some people would, you know, do robbery. They would assist others in killing themselves. And you look at that and you go, that's disgusting. But then again, I have to pause and say, wait a minute. Maybe some of us at moments have lied for money. Some of us may have cheated for gain. It is a trait amongst us, amongst people in general, that God has to tell us, don't covet the neighbor's thing because we're greedy. God has to tell us, don't steal because we're greedy. David, on the other hand, shows real integrity at the moment that God is working in his heart. Even though he has tough times, when David is walking with the Lord, when he is right with the Lord, he's a real man of integrity. How do I know that? Let let me point out a couple things. One, he never forces himself on the Jews. That is, he's not making them do something he doesn't, that they don't want. But more importantly, David doesn't go after Ishbosheth. David doesn't kill him off, even though he's a bogus king by the plans of God. David never goes up there. Why? Why, when Ishbosheth is a weak king, why doesn't David take his life? Do you remember when David had taken Saul's, um, it's one of the two times, whether he took his cruise, his, his canteen and spear, or when he cut off the robe. But one of those times, David had opportunity to kill Saul, and he didn't. Do any of you remember when afterwards David calls when Saul and he have separate space between them? He says, hey, Saul, wake up. The one time when he got in while they were sleeping. The other time when, when Saul was in the cave to use the bathroom, and then David cut off the ham, and Saul walks away. He says, hey, Saul. Both those occasions, Saul repents and says, I shouldn't be doing this. I shouldn't be chasing you because you're more righteous than me. One of those occasions, Saul says, you will be king. And when you become king, promise me you will not harm my children. And we read in the text, David promised it. David agreed. 
David agreed, I will not harm any of your kids. David gave his word. So why is it after Saul is off the scene that David, who is now getting a lot of people coming to him, as we mentioned in First Chronicles, a lot of people are deserting to him. They want him to become king. Why doesn't he go up north and take Ishbosheth out? He gave his word. He gave his word. Do you keep your word? David's a man of integrity. He's one that he would, not, he would not cross the line of breaking his word nor harm the king's anointed. Because God, that was, Saul was the Lord's anointed. But what happened? What happened? We, we read in Psalm 101 that David says, I will not tolerate, I will not have company with those who are evildoers. Go to chapter 1. You see it displayed. How David, when those times said he could have killed Saul, I'm not going to do it, he's the Lord's anointed. And then what happens is we read in chapter 1 of 2 Samuel about what happened to Saul. David knows he's dead. But the passage says that after three days, somebody comes from the battlefield to Ziklag and says, David, Saul and all of his boys are dead. And David says, how do you know this? And the man says, oh, um, I happened... To come across, and he uses that, that phrase even. I happened to come across as I was going through the field and I was leaving the camp of Saul. He says it twice that he was in the camp of Saul. He, he is described as an Amalekite who probably was a mercenary who fought for Saul and was in the camp of Saul. But he says, after the battle, I'm going along and I happened to cross Saul. And when I saw him, he had been wounded by the archers. He had, as we read in chapter 31, he asked his, Saul asked his armor bearer, finish me off. Don't let me fall into the hands of the Philistines. The armor bearer said, I'm not going to do this. I'm not going to kill the king. I'm not going to harm you. That would be wrong. And so Saul drew his own sword. He fell upon the sword and he missed. He wounded himself. He didn't kill himself. Now the Amalekite says, I came across and there he was wounded. And he says, slay me. Kill me. Finish me off. I hear the Philistines. They're right. They're coming up. And the Amalekite who does this, who tells the story to David, he says, so what I did is I killed him and I got his crown and here's the crown, David. I finished Saul off. You're, you're supposed to be king anyway. So here he is. Now the question that comes up by, by scholars like you folk is was the Amalekite lying or telling the truth? Did he finish off Saul or, you know, so as, and told this story so as to gain favor with David, he thought? Or did, you know, we don't know. We don't, we don't know if his story is fabricated or if it really happened. David took him at his word. David, David does it. Now, by the way, there's something really ironic in chapter 1 of 2 Samuel. Saul, according to the story, is finished off by an Amalekite. What's ironic about that? He was supposed to have wiped out the Amalekites in 1 Samuel 15. He was supposed to have wiped them out, but he saved the best for himself. So he dies by the very hand of somebody that he was supposed to have gotten rid of several years earlier. Isn't that a twist? Okay. So the, the man tells, and David's response is really interesting. David's response when he, when, he, when he gets this news is, first of all, we read in chapter 1, 
And we, there's a whole section I want to just look at. But chapter 1, then David took hold of his own clothes, he rent them, and likewise all the men. Isn't that interesting? Isn't that interesting? This is the guy who chased David for the last 15 years and tried to kill David, and David is mourning him. You and I would have expected David to spit on his grave. You and I would have expected David's men to cheer. But David says, no, we're going to mourn. And then David goes on and he makes this comment to the Amalekite, to the young man. Where are you from? I'm the son of a stranger, an Amalekite. David said to him, how was it that you were not afraid to stretch forth your hand to destroy the Lord's anointed? David called one of the young men his own and said, go near, fall upon him, and he smote him that day. And David said, your blood be upon your own head, for your mouth has testified against thee, saying, I have slain the Lord's anointed. You see, David wanted nothing to do with it. He wanted nothing to do with Saul's death and kept himself far from it. Very clearly, David had nothing to do with this. Even though it would have been acceptable to cheer because David has a chance to get up on the throne, David says, I am not going to rejoice in profiting at the death of Saul. I'm not going to, I'm not, we're going we're gonna to be opposed to it. I'm again it. I, I, I'm totally opposed to it. He does the same thing later on. Um, let me bore you with a little bit more details. Chapter 2, 3, and 4 gives a lot of background information. That is, you read it and go, why? Part of it is this, folk. As you read the chapters, remember they're recording this stuff for the Jews. The Jews. Part of this is to influence the other 11 tribes to come to David. This is, this is their, their headline news of the day. They're presenting David in a light that shows he's a man of integrity. He's a candidate that you should consider. He's better than Ishbosheth. And so it tells a story about Abner. Abner, as I already mentioned, was Saul's big general. He was the chief of staff. And as the story goes on, we, talk, we read about Abner being very influential after Saul dies. That talks about he has power, he has influence in the other 11 tribes. And he's the one that you read in chapter 2, he's the one that said, let's make Ishbosheth king. And so Ishbosheth is basically a puppet king. Abner is the one that's making the mouth move. He's behind the scenes. He is like somebody who holds an office, but they're, they're not able to function, and other people are doing the behind the scenes. If you could imagine such a thing. Okay, that's taking place. And so here it is. The story unfolds that David's troops are one day out there, and Abner has some troops, and they run into each other at the well. And the two, the two generals say, instead of us fighting with our big forces, let's do what David and Goliath did. We'll have some from each fight and we'll see who wins. So they have 12 men from each side come out and the 12 kill the other 12. Which leads to, okay, now we're going to fight all of us. And they get into this battle and this battle is, goes this way that, that Abner and his troops are beat soundly by Joab, David's general, and his troops. The numbers I've given you up there are how, how lopsided the losses were. And so Abner is taking off. He's running, 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 trying to get away from, Saul, from David's troops and led by Joab. He's trying to get away from him, get away from him, get away from him. And one of Joab's younger brothers by the name of Asahel chases after Abner. And, and they give you details. They say that he's like some of our teen guys. He's a runner. You know, he, he he's, wins races. 
and he is catching up to Abner. And Abner turns and sees that it's Azahel, and he knows that he's faster than Abner. And Abner says, stay away from me, boy. You, you should go home. Don't you come near me, I'm going to kill you. And, and Azahel keeps on coming, and so Abner gets him with the spear, the blunt end of the spear, and kills him. And Abner takes off. A few minutes later, here comes Joab, the older brother, and sees his younger brother dead. And the, the chase is done. They all leave, and they go back to their places. And what happens is Joab puts it in his mind. You killed my brother, my younger brother. And so he's got in his mind family, a family feud. He wants to get revenge. And what happens is later on, how much time I don't know, Later on, Ishbosheth accuses his chief of staff, the guy who's propping him up, accuses him of having some illicit relationship with some concubine that was in his dad's harem. And Abner is so mad. So it seems to be falsely accused. He is so mad that he says, that's it, I'm not going to be with you anymore. I'm going to leave and I'm going to go to David's side. And I'm going to take all the tribes with me to David's side. So he sends a message to David. David said, let's meet. So they meet in Hebron. And David and he work out the arrangement of what will it take for Abner to come and join forces and how would this work out. And so they have the meeting. Abner leaves Hebron. About the time that he leaves Hebron, in the back gate comes Joab. And Joab is told, Abner was just here. And so he goes to David and he says, what in the world are you doing with Abner? He's the enemy. David explains. He's changing sides. He's deceiving you. And he is so angry. Joab leaves David's presence and he sends a messenger after Abner. And the messenger has this message, says, Abner, come back. There's more details we need to work out. And when Abner comes back to the gate of the city, there's Joab. David doesn't know a thing about it. Joab is standing there at the gate and he says, Abner, we need to talk. And when they start talking, Joab pulls out a knife and he kills them. By the way, you want to hear something that's really, really ironic about this whole thing? If you killed somebody accidentally or intentionally and you wanted to get a trial, you didn't want a blood feud, you didn't want the, the family to come and get revenge, where would you run to? A city of refuge. You know what? Hebron's a city of refuge. You can't kill somebody in revenge unless there's a trial. So that's the same place. That's the same spot where right there at the gate of the city, that's where Joab kills Abner. And so David has to respond when he hears about it. And David's response is absolutely remarkable. Now remember, this is written to influence the people even in the north. What would the people of the north probably think? David killed our, our general. David had him killed. Can you believe that? So David, with his integrity, David wants to go the extra mile. And so what he does is David, he's, when he hears about it, he's absolutely appalled. And we read how David responds. Oops, I wanted to stay right at that spot. Chapter 3. You know the setting. Now watch what David does, what David says. And this is really important in the whole story. Chapter 3, verse 31. 
David said to Joab and to all the people that were with him, All of you, rend your clothes, gird with sackcloth, and were all mourning Abner. King David himself, he followed the funeral pyre. He's following it. They buried Abner in Hebron. The king lifted up his voice and wept at the grave of Abner. And all the people wept. And the king lamented over Abner and said, Died Abner as a fool dies? Your hands were not bound, nor your feet were in fetters. As a man falls before wicked men, that's how you fell. And all the people wept again over him. And when all the people came to cause David to eat meat... While it was yet day, David swore, saying, So do God to me, and more also, if I taste bread or anything else, till the sun be down. Here's your key phrases. All the people took notice of it, and how did they respond? What's your Bible read? It pleased them, as whatsoever the king did pleased all the people. For all the people, and who else? All Israel, the other 11 tribes, they understood that day that it was not the king to slay Abner, the son of Ner. Isn't that important? See how David was so ethical that David said, I want nothing to do with it. The same thing happens in chapter 4. What happens is once Abner is dead, Ishbosheth has nobody propping him up. He's weak. So what happens to Ishbosheth is two of his captains come in and they. He's in bed, they cut off his head, and they take his head to David's palace back in Hebron. And they deliver the head. This is really gory right before lunch. And so they, they come, and the captains figure David's going to be really excited. David's going to be really, wow, my enemy's all gone. You know, here they are. And when they bring the reward, David is appalled that they would do something. David had sworn no harm to Ishbosheth. He didn't want to be a part of it at all. So what happens when those two men come? We read in chapter 4, when they show up at David's doorstep, David says, in verse 10, uh, he says to, uh, to them, you know, when somebody told me, saying, behold, Saul was dead, thinking to have brought good tidings, I took hold of him. I slew him in Ziklag, who thought that I would give him rewards for his tidings of Saul's death. How much more when wicked men have slain a righteous person in his own bed? Shall I not therefore now require his blood of your hand and take you away from the earth? David commanded his young men. They slew him. And it gets really, really gross. Okay, really detailed about how he has them quartered. All of it because David's a man of integrity. So we have this whole point. He doesn't allow greed to dictate his ethics. Even though, even though it profited him supposedly, I'm not going to have, if it's wrong, it's wrong. I don't care if it puts money in my pocket. I don't care if it puts a crown on my head. Don't you wish we had modern politicians that operate this way? And so here he is, David's just, now, if somebody wrote your story about the way you conduct business, if somebody wrote your story the way you pay people, if somebody wrote your story about your insurance claims, Somebody wrote your story about how you talk to others in your family with integrity and honesty. How would it read? Would they have a chapter on integrity? I mean, seriously, ask yourself the question. Are you honest about your homework? Are you honest about your kids' homework? Uh, ask yourself the question. When you make a report to the boss, is it honest? You, 
When, when you fill out the things for Calvary Clubs, your kids doing the things, or teens or your parents signing off and saying that your kids did stuff, are you honest? Are, are you honest when, when you pay people for work? Are you honest when, when, you're, when you're writing down your hours that you worked on a time card? Are, are you honest when you say, mom and dad say, hey, did you do such and such before you leave? But you want to leave so badly you lie about what you did. Integrity is so important. Integrity doesn't make any difference what the grade will be. If you lied about something to get a better grade, shame on you. If you lie to make more money, shame on you. If you have to lie to be able to go on a missions trip, shame on you. It's not worth it. David said the crown isn't worth being deceitful, not keeping my word. Do you walk before people in such a way that integrity is the key? We have two more thoughts and we'll do them quickly. His walk before others, his willingness to help others. His willingness to help others is at the end of chapter 1. The end of chapter, no, uh, let me get there and I'll tell you. Uh, Chapter 2, chapter 2 verse 5. Look at the text. It says that David sends a message to this men at Jabesh Gilead and he's, he says, I'll come and help you if you need a hand. That means nothing. It means absolutely nothing to any of us in this room unless we know a little bit of background. Jabesh Gilead was a city that was on the border of Israel and Philistines territory. Jabesh Gilead was attacked years ago when Saul was first named king. Jabesh Gilead is the city that all of a sudden the aggressors came and said, we're going to take over your city. And they said, well, if we surrender, can we keep our homes and everything? And the enemy said, wait a minute. If you surrender, you can keep everything except for your right eye. We're going to take everybody's right eye. Man, woman, child. Everybody has to give up one eye. And we'll let you live. What a deal. So they sent, a, they sent a text to Saul, and Saul brought an army and rescued those people. And so all the time for the 40 years Saul was king, Saul was their protector. He was helping them to fend off any of the raiding peoples that lived near them. Protector's dead. Protector's no longer around. And on top of that, if you go back to the end of 1 Samuel 31... Do you remember what they did with, Je- with Saul's body and those of his sons? Do you remember how gross that was? They took their heads off, and what did they do with the bodies? They, they hung the bodies on the walls of the city. Jabesh Gileadites, it says that they snuck in, the men from Jabesh Gilead snuck in, got the bodies down, they buried the bodies. So if you were a Philistine and you had hung up those bodies to warn people, what would you think about the Jabesh Gileadites taking the bodies down? Would you be mad about it? So they need protection. They need somebody. David says, I'm here for you. If you need help, I am willing to come and help you out. I will provide and protect you the way that Saul did in the past. He's willing to help out somebody who needs assistance, who is vulnerable, who could be taken advantage of. That that, that is a tremendous character trait. That is a tremendous idea to offer help to people who have a need. We read in scriptures about the blessings 
that will come upon those who help out individuals who are struggling with things, finances, that God will deliver you out of troubles. We read that if you give to the poor, your righteousness will, will endure, that God will exalt you with honor if you are a charitable person. We even read about how those who are charitable, God will bless them. A lifestyle that brings God's blessings, care for people who need help. Jesus talked about that. Jesus talked about assisting people in need. But the needs can go beyond just money. The needs might go this way. Those who are individuals who are feeble-minded, according to King James, which means they're fearful. They may need encouragement. When it says the weak, those who are vulnerable, younger Christians who are struggling who have an issue and they're, 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 they're being overcome by the temptation, they may need your help. Are you an individual that offers such assistance? Are, are you an individual who, when you know of somebody who has a need, do you hurry past like the priest did to the, the man who was beaten on the road? Or are you a good Samaritan? Are, are you an individual who you're going to help out even if it means digging deep in your pockets somebody who's going through tough times financially. Are you an individual that you said, I will lend a hand to a widow, like the Bible tells me to. I will go to their place. I will help them out with a project, with yard work. I will extend myself. Are, are you one that says, I, I know some people that are feeble, they're discouraged. Would you even take some time out of your busy schedule? Would it even dawn upon you that it might be great this week for us just to go and visit to be an encourager? Just to go to somebody who's widowed or widower that they eat every meal by themselves? But we're so busy that we can't even do what is the pure and undefiled religion, James says even to visit those people. David was. No wonder he was blessed of God. He was always looking out for individuals. He was trying to make others who would feel welcomed and, and of value. Do you do that? When, you, when the story is written about you, is it going to have cared about others? Really? Indeed. Let's finish with this. This thought, his words about others. How he talked about other people. How, how David, David, he, you know, we start off with this question. How do you talk about others when they're not there? How do you talk about somebody you don't get along with? How do you talk about that irregular relative? How do you talk about somebody who's done harm to you? We read in chapter 1, how David spoke of Jonathan and Saul. When he hears about them dying, this is one of the greatest um, eulogies you'll ever read. Go to chapter 1, verse 17. David lamented with this lamentation over Saul. Wait, wait a minute, wait a minute. Saul tried to kill him. Saul was his father-in-law. Well, maybe that doesn't mean anything. Okay. Here's what he says about him. He says these words. Phenomenal, okay? The beauty of Israel is slain upon the high places. How the mighty are fallen. 
Tell it not in Gath, publish it not in the streets of Ascalon, lest the daughters of the Philistines rejoice, lest the daughters of the uncircumcised triumph. Ye mountains of Gilboa, let there be no dew, neither let there be rain upon you, nor fields of offerings. For there the shield of the mighty is vilely cast away, the shield of Saul, as though he had been, not been anointed with oil. From the blood of the slain, from the fat of the mighty, from the bow of Jonathan, turn not back. The sword of Saul, return not empty. They fought for us. They fought for us as his idea. Saul and Jonathan were lovely, pleasant in their lives. And in their death, they were not divided. They were swifter than eagles. They were stronger than lions. David's speaking positively about Saul, who tried to kill him. You daughters of Israel, weep over Saul who clothed you in scarlet and with other delights. You remember? Do you remember why many people ran to David, like the 600? They were oppressed by Saul. Saul was was overtaxing, overburdening. David doesn't bring it up. David talks about how Saul had benefited them, which he did earlier in his reign. Even who put an ornaments of gold upon your apparel. How the mighty have fallen in the midst of the battle. O Jonathan, you were slain in the high places. I am distressed over you, my brother Jonathan. Very pleasant have you been unto me. Your love to me was wonderful, passing the love of women. Okay, we got to pause. I know know time is here, but I've got to pause on this. How are people going to take this verse? How is it going to be distorted? that they were in a gay relationship. That's not true. It's not what he's saying. He's not saying, take the context of what he is saying. Your love was wonderful, passing the love of women. What woman is he possibly referring to? Jonathan's sister. Do you remember her? She had the guy's name, Michael. Do you remember David was married to her? Anybody remember that story? So he, got, he got her from Saul when he said, who am I to be, to be married to the, you know, to the daughter of the king? You go out and kill so many Philistines, I'll give you my daughter as a reward. Saul meant to get David killed, but David killed all the Philistines. Was it a hundred? Does that sound right? He said, and he brought them all back. Okay, and the passage says Michael loved David, but continue on. Okay, Jonathan had remained loyal to David all through the years of his refuge. Jonathan even stood up to dad and said, you're wrong trying to kill David. You're wrong. He's done nothing wrong. And dad got so mad at Jonathan one day. Do you remember what dad tried to do? Try to kill his own boy. Yeah. Try to kill him with a javelin. But what about Michael? What about the wife? What about the sister? Saul's daughter. Okay, she was in love. She married David. And during the refugee years, where did she stay? She stayed with dad. She didn't go with David. She stays with dad. And during those refugee years, she marries another man. How loyal was that? Okay. Jonathan, you were more loyal than the love of that woman. Does it make sense? Yeah, it's not a gay relationship. It's a family comparison of brother and sister. And so he goes on and he makes these comments. Even though you have hurt me, even though you caused me hardships, 
you, the mighty, have fallen. Wow, what amazing. Amazing. He, he does this the same thing with the commendations he makes about, about Abner. He speaks very highly when Abner dies, and he talks about him being a mighty man, but he was his enemy prior to that point. He, he does it with Ishbosheth dies. When Ishbosheth, a poor king, a bad king, he calls him a righteous man. David consistently spoke about others in a positive sense. Do you? Do you? When your story's written, what will it say about you? That you're a gossip? What will it say about you? That you're a highly critical person? That you're one who found fault in others? That you kept on bringing up past hurts? That you're an individual who was complaining? Or you were an individual who complimented others? Who was positive? Who was an individual who was an encouragement? Through your speech, you relayed that which was kindness and Christ-like attitude towards others. What's your story? If they wrote it this week, what would they write? You want God's blessings? Then you got to do what David did. you got to be an individual who in the Old Testament era, he lived the way Christ would come to live. He worshipped, helped out others, one of integrity that nobody could find fault in Christ, one that waited on the Lord's leading before he did anything, one whose words were so sweet that people were drawn by his words. We need to be like David, who was all of us then need to be more like Christ. So what's it going to be? You drawing closer to the Lord? You portraying Christ in your life in these practical areas? What's your story? Father, I pray, help us not just to learn, but help us to live this tremendous example, this challenge. Lord, it's, I, I, I know, God, I talked to you about this and told, asked you to help me to speed up so much material. But God, there's just, it is so challenging to me. It is so pungent, potent to be the right type of person that God can bless. Help me, help my friends to do exactly what we talked about this day. With our words, with our worship, with our willingness towards others, with, with our walk, help us. Help us to be individuals that you can bless. God, I thank you for meeting with us. Thank you for your word. Bless the service that we'll have this evening with the missionary. Make it to be encouraging and impacting. I pray in Jesus' name.